0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast about curiosities from the campaign trail. I'm John Dickerson. On WhistleStop today, the cry that ended the presidential campaign. In 1972, Maine Senator Edmund Muskie was a shoe in the inevitable, the inescapable, the Nixon beating next president of the United States. But when he broke down and wept a week before the New Hampshire primary, that was it for his campaign. But did he really cry? We'll answer that question and more. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, then you love history the way I do. And if so, I want to let you know about a great set of history lessons being offered by The Great Courses. It's called Turning Points in American History. It's really great. These are deep looks into signature moments in American history. The history of baseball was one I was listening to recently. Once, a gentleman's game where throwing a curveball was seen as underhanded. Well, it was overhanded, but it wasn't fair. The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for Whistle Stop listeners. Order Turning Points in American History at 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our Whistle Stop today is February twenty-sixth, 1972. It's just after 9.30 in the morning, and it's snowing very hard. There are about 60 to 70 reporters Milling around a flatbed truck in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire. Less than a dozen hours ago, we received word that Senator Edmund Muskie from Maine, the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination, was making a statement outside the Manchester Union Leader newspaper. Muskie's wearing an overcoat and a scarf. His hair is already frosted with a doily of snow from the six-block walk over here. The snow is still coming down. Notebooks are wilted. The ballpoint pen doesn't work. Muskie holds a microphone in his hand, and the photographers, scribblers, and cameramen are all pointed up looking at him. One of the radio guys holds up a microphone like a torch, but it's wrapped to protect it from the weather, so it looks like he's holding up a giant Tootsie Pop. Muskie starts raging at William Loeb, the editor of the Manchester Union Leader, the largest newspaper in the state, reaching about 60 or so percent of the Democrats in the state. Loeb has been calling Muskie Moscow Muskie and been eating away at him for months. The kind of ad hominem personal attacks that we think about now with Rush Limbaugh and Muskie, who's been running a campaign all over the primary states, hasn't been in New Hampshire much. So the poison has been sinking in with the voters. But what has Muskie on this platform in the snow early in the morning is an editorial lobe is put in the front page of the paper recently, charging Muskie with an ethnic slur. And the senator is railing. He's lied about me and my wife, says Muskie. He's proved himself to be a gutless coward. A mudslinging, vicious, gutless liar. The fans of Muskies, who have gathered in the morning, applaud. But it's in their gloves, so it's muffled. It sounds like somebody's beating a rug. Give him hell, Ed, yells one. Another one says, give him holy hell. Muskie also charges that Loeb has attacked his wife in another front page editorial. He looks like he's breaking up. He starts to talk again, but he has to pause. Is he crying? It's hard to tell because it's snowing. He doesn't walk, Muskie says of Loeb. He crawls. In popular campaign lore, this is the moment where the wheels of Ed Muskie's inevitable campaign slipped their housing and went rolling down the lane. The big lesson of this moment, though, is about inevitability at a time of huge change and also the treachery and heavy garment of high expectations. So we're going to drop back. The 1972 election is big. You got to be careful. We've got the Watergate break in. The rules that have been put in place by the Democratic Party are new. The primary process is brand new. George McGovern, who ends up winning the nomination, helped write these new rules. And this is the first election where 18 to 21 year olds can vote. They're called the 26ers because of the 26th Amendment. It was a big field in 72. Chalk full the way the Republican field is in 2016. There was Scoop Jackson, Senator from Washington. Muskie, John Lindsay, the Republican mayor who'd switched parties. L.A. Mayor Sam Yorty was running. Alabama Governor George Wallace was running. McGovern. Eugene McCarthy was running. Ways and Means Chairman Wilbur Mills was running. Shirley Chisholm, the, the first African-American woman elected to Congress, also ran for president that year. There were more candidates than voters, Russell Baker joked. Art Buckwald, who was a political humorist at the time, and was always creating imaginary characters. Quoted one from New Hampshire, I've got an appointment with John Lindsay to shake hands tomorrow. He already shook hands with me last week in Concord for CBS, but his people say they want to shake hands with me in Waterville Valley for NBC. Muskie was the undisputed frontrunner. In January, the Gallup poll had Muskie leading Kennedy 32 to 27. McGovern had just 3%. Kennedy wasn't running But he was in every poll because there was always speculation about Kennedy. Muskie had been the vice presidential nominee under Hubert Humphrey in 1968, and he'd served as kind of the leader in waiting in the intervening years. On election night in 1970, he'd given a high-profile speech dissecting Nixon, and it was kind of the envy of all Democrats who wanted to run for president for delivering such a good speech. He had the money. He had the endorsements. He was leading in the polls. The only other person who could have knocked him off was Kennedy, and Kennedy was still dealing with the fallout from Chapel Quiddick in 1969. Muskie was also a favorite in in New Hampshire because he was from Maine. And that was a bit of his problem because he thought, I've got New Hampshire in the bag, so I'm going to go pay attention to other states. He was also a very careful, risk-averse candidate. He was trying to appeal to everybody, not being too far left. He was against the war, but not so far left as to be associated with the subversive forces undermining the cities. This was the first election in which suburbanites voted more than in the cities. So you didn't want to be seen as too city or you get stuck in the general election. So this kind of put him neither fish nor fowl. And here's how a frustrated supporter, John Gilligan, who's the governor of Ohio, described the timidity of Muskie's appeal. He said it was another poultice and another nostrum only with a little nutmeg stirred in. McGovern, on the other hand, was going after the youth vote, the black vote, the anti-war vote. He was pointed. He was talking about a movement. And if you haven't already started to feel that twitch in your stomach, it is essentially the parallel to what we later saw in 2008 with the inevitable candidate Hillary Clinton and the upstart candidate running as a movement appealing to younger voters with Barack Obama. So Muskie comes into New Hampshire fighting off the challenge from McGovern. And he's hit with a huge scandal two weeks before the primary. The union leader publishes a letter that purported to be from a man in Florida who had been with Muskie in a visit Muskie had paid to a drug rehabilitation center. And the letter was printed like in child's handwriting, and it had several errors in it. But it read, once you figured the spelling out, thusly, Mr. Loeb, I saw you on TV the other night. My father's friend gets your newspaper. We went to Fort Lauderdale to meet Senator Muskie. We were right beside him when one of the men asked him what did he know about blacks and the problems with them because he didn't have any in Maine. A man with the senator said, no, not blacks, but we have Canucks. Now, Canuck is considered slang and offensive by some French Canadians. It's like calling a Polish person a Polak. The letter continued, what did he mean? We asked Mr. Muskie, who laughed and said, ...come to New England to see. This would forever be known as the Canuck letter... ...suggesting that Muskie was in on the joke... ...making fun of Canucks. It mattered because there was a considerable... ...French-Canadian population in Manchester. It was somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of the vote... ...according to the papers at the time. So on the front page, Loeb editorialized... ...with a reprint of this letter. We've always known Senator Muskie was a hypocrite... ...but we never expected to have it so clearly revealed as in this letter sent to us from Florida. So the Muskie campaign freaked out. They got on the phones, called around to voters, and found out they were really bleeding. His internal polling showed that Muskie was losing, had lost 10 points. The Boston Globe did a poll, and it found Muskie dropping by double digits. It was such a swerve in the numbers that the Globe commissioned another poll, because they figured just the methodology was crazy. So that's what put Muskie in mind to ankle his way down the snowy Manchester Street and climb up on the flatbed that he had ordered to be parked in front of the union leader offices and he brought with him three franco-american supporters and the director of the drug treatment center in florida to vouch for his character and to say that this never happened Muskie said i can remember when i was a boy being called polack a term of derision i hated it i never used that kind of term with respect to any other ethnic group now we must stop here for the entry of richard nixon Because the Canuck letter, it may not surprise you to learn, was the handiwork of Nixon's henchmen. One of the favorite techniques of the Nixon gang was to write anonymous letters from various people. And the Nixon team, and we'll talk about this in a future episode, had a thoroughgoing effort to screw with other campaigns. It included everything from ordering hundreds of pizzas to the campaign offices to things much more serious. And obviously that's what the Watergate break-in was about. Some people called it dirty tricks, of course, and it was also known – and children, cover your ears if your parents are forcing you to listen to this – it was also known as rat fucking. On October 10th of that year, the Washington Post ran a story about the Canuck Letter, and there's a great section about the Canuck Letter in All the President's Men. Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward reported that law enforcement said that – The Canuck letter was a fabrication and the best example of political spying and sabotage conducted on behalf of President Nixon's re-election and directed by officials of the White House and the Committee for the Re-election of the President. The main culprit was a Nixon press aide named Ken Clawson, who'd bragged to a female colleague of Woodward and Bernstein's that he'd been behind the letter. Clawson later denied it, but that may have had to do more with his personal life than having written the letter. Bragged about it, Clausen did, while having a drink with an unmarried woman who was a reporter at the time at The Post. When he heard the circumstances of their conversation, particularly that a married man had invited himself over to an unmarried woman's apartment, was going to be printed in the paper. Clausen famously tried not to have it printed by saying, I have a wife and a family and a dog and a cat. The editor-in-chief of Loeb's newspaper conceded that Clawson had been useful in helping the letter get to the newspaper. Let's think about it one more time about the date of that Washington Post story, October 10th, 1972. Woodward and Bernstein finger the White House and the president's reelection campaign with coming up with a phony letter playing in the Democratic Party's primary. If something happened like this today, cable would melt. The president would be out of office. Of course, Nixon goes on to win this election. Let's take us back to the platform in the snow musky going on he moves from the canuck letter to the attack on his wife and he says i've been in politics all my life i'm not a child i know the sorts of things that happen i've got to be prepared to take them what really got me was this editorial attacking my wife and he read the headline of the editorial which was called big daddy's jane What he was talking about was actually a guest editorial. It was from the December twenty-seven issue of Newsweek. It was run in the union leader, but it wasn't written by the union leader. In the Newsweek editorial, Jane Muskie was traveling with reporters, many of them from the society columns, and she was kind of letting her hair down. She said at the beginning of one conversation, let's all tell dirty jokes. And she asked for her purse so she could have a cigarette. She confessed to liking a few drinks before dinner and then a drink after dinner. She said, because the next day, everything seems to work just right. And who among us can't agree with that? She referred to her affection for booze, with no apparent reference to the campaign of 1840. But she said, I can't mix booze and wine, or I get a headache and have little dreams. And she called her husband, jokingly, Big Daddy. He was many years her senior. Now, a brief aside about how fun it is to do the research on these stories, I'm reading the actual newspaper account of Jane Muskie saying all these things in the Boca Raton newspaper, which is the actual newspaper. And right above the article about where she talks about Big Daddy and booze, there is an advertisement for Big Daddy's liquor. <laughs> right underneath it, in which they're selling Chivas Regal and other things. It's just you know these one of these little moments of historical serendipity. Anyway, Jane. Muskie sounds fun, and in any right-thinking country, all of this behavior would only accrue to the benefit of the weary candidate. It has long been the stable foundation of democracies that the spouse of the leader should be fun at parties. And one other aside, the way that magazines wrote about spouses was amazing. Here's another quote, random quote from the Newsweek article. Miss Muskie is plump despite daily drills in yoga, which find her balancing on her shoulders in hotel rooms along the campaign trail. On her feet and speech-making – Miss Muskie is no spellbinder. Kind of harsh and catty. Muskie thought so too, and he thought reprinting a two-month-old editorial on the front page of the union leader was an attempt to call his wife's character into question and to hurt him. And it was in this section of his remarks that Muskie had the difficulty. He said, he's talking about my wife. And then he paused, trailed off for a while. And he said, a good woman. He fought to regain his composure. And while he did, it took so long, a supporter of Muskie shouted out, who's with Muskie? And the crowd cheered while he gathered himself together. Loeb, of course, not missing an opportunity, phoned in a front page editorial, which declared, boy, this is not the man I want to have his finger on the nuclear button. Bob Dole, the chairman of the National Republican Committee, said the display indicated that Senator Muskie lacks stability. Muskie'd been running a kind of reasoned, cool-headed campaign, and this shattered his image. It also didn't play well against the images of the incumbent because Nixon, at the very moment this is going on, is over in China looking like a strong chief executive. So on the nightly news, you add images of Nixon astride the world and Muskie having this emotional moment in the snow. Everybody covering the moment knows that Muskie was emotional. Even Muskie, he told Teddy White, who quotes him in the making of the president in 1972, Muskie said, I'd been down to Florida, and then I flew to Idaho, then I flew to California, then back to Washington to vote in the Senate, and I flew back to California, and then I flew to Manchester. I was hit with this Canuck story. I'm tough physically, but no one could do that. It was a bitch of a day. The staff thought I should go down to the union leader. If I were going to do it again, I'd look for a campaign manager, a genius, a schedule maker who has veto power over candidates' own decisions. You've got to have a czar. For Christ's sake, you've got to pace yourself. I just got damn mad and choked up over my anger. It's funny that Muskie says the staff thought he should go down because in the oral histories of the Muskie campaign, it's Tony Podesta, who was running the show in New Hampshire, who said it was all Muskie's idea. He said Muskie called him... Late at night, the night before the press conference, and said, I want to get a flatbed truck. I want a system. I want to go stand in front of the newspaper and want to tell that guy what I think of him. Podesta remembers, I'm probably not the first person to say Muskie had a bit of a temper. And he was also pounding on the table and raising his voice and was really furious at Loeb and furious with what he said about his wife, Jane, and furious with the fact that he'd attacked his family. It was a really low blow. So after this moment, they don't know whether this is good or bad. Podesta says, Muskie said, I wish I shouldn't have broken down like that. And Podesta said to him, oh, you know, you're human. You're being a human being. It's a human situation. I kind of tried to say, you know, that it all seemed authentic and real. This was not a canned political speech. This was not something your speechwriter wrote for you. You're speaking from the gut, and that's what people want to hear from you. I said, don't worry about it. It's a good thing. Muskie's wife, Jane, tried to defend him. The question is, do you want a man in charge of this country who's a human being or one who never allows emotion to come in? What's in greater dispute is not Muskie's emotionalism, but whether he cried. I watched the video, and it's clear he's very emotional. His voice cracks when he talks about his wife. He has to stop for 10 seconds or more, and he appears to wipe his eyes and nose. So if an emotional candidate is disqualified from being president, which was the charge here, of course, then Muskie met that standard. But it's the notion of crying that took on kind of special significance in this moment. The Washington Post, David Broder put the idea most into play in his description of the moment on the flatbed truck and in it he makes Muskie sound like a bubbling mess the lead of broder's dispatch from the afternoon read with tears streaming down his face and voice choked with emotion senator edmund s Muskie stood in the snow outside the manchester union leader this morning and accused its publisher of making vicious attacks on him and his wife streaming down his face suggests something altogether different other reporters had written about the crying but they'd Put it further down in the piece, and some didn't mention it at all. The Muskie campaign said it wasn't tears. It was snow. But then later in the oral history, George Mitchell, the senator from also from Maine, who was a top Muskie aide at the time, said, I've always felt that although Senator Muskie denied it at the time, he cried. I think it was clear that tears did come to his eyes. No one else had the impact that David Broder did. He was the leading political reporter of the day. He was the top boy on The Boys of the Bus, which was written about the reporters covering the 1972 campaign. So this put this idea into all the syndicated papers across the country. But what was probably more powerful from Broder was the piece he wrote three days later. The headline said, support for Muskie waivers in New Hampshire. Now, remember, he was the front runner, So it was the first piece to say that Muskie was in trouble. Jack Germond, another famous writer for the Baltimore Sun, had written a similar piece, but it showed up a day later and it wasn't syndicated. So coming out of this race, Broder, who had interviewed, he said, 75 people for that piece about Muskie's Troubles, became the kind of oracle who had called the shot in Manchester. Johnny Apple wrote a similar story for The Times, talking to 100 people around the state. And described Muskie's support this way. Those who support him do so grudgingly, without passion, like children forced to choose between broccoli and cabbage. Neither piece written at the time said crying was a big thing weighing on the voters. Some were quoted as saying it humanized him. Some saying that they wouldn't vote for him because of it. What they said was more important was this lack of enthusiasm. Meanwhile, while Muskie was lighting no one's hair on fire, McGovern was working the state hard. An aside, it was no fun to be interviewed by The New York Times for this race. The Times described one of these voters talking about the candidates as a dumpy woman behind the counter of a North Conway luncheonette. And then another one is described as an Irish-American housewife who lives in a tacky Dover apartment. But here's the thing. Muskie won New Hampshire. He got 46 percent of the vote. McGovern got only 37 percent. But the problem is that when you're the front runner and it's your neighboring state, 46 percent of the vote isn't going to cut it. Also, remember, at the beginning of the year, McGovern only had 3 percent of the vote. So McGovern is now suddenly up at 37%. And there was another problem. Marie Carrier, who was the New Hampshire in-state campaign manager for Muskie, had predicted that he would at least get 50%. And Muskie had sort of backed her assessment. So this is now known as the Maria Carrier rule, which is just you never say how you're going to do. So when McGovern did better than expected and Muskie didn't do as well, it was seen as a big loss for Muskie. And then Carrier helped this by saying to reporters when the results came in, that it was heartbreaking. The Wall Street Journal wrote, The New Hampshire results, instead of providing hoped-for musky momentum for these battles ahead, have raised psychological and political hurdles he must fight to overcome. The Journal also had this great piece of punditry. Yet Mr. McGovern still stands only the slimmest of chances of winning the nomination. He almost surely is too liberal for the bulk of the party. That, of course, wouldn't turn out to be true. As the candidates headed for the other primaries, musky... Struggled to fight back, and the crying thing dogged him as a joke. He made it down to Florida, and there were bumper stickers already printed that said, Vote for Muskie, or he'll cry. Bob Dole, always there to twist the knife, said, I don't blame Muskie for crying. If I had to run against Mr. Nixon, I'd be crying too. And McGovern, right, seen as the candidate of a kind of soft, lefty, let's be nice to everyone crowd, in response to Muskie saying that that George Wallace's voters were bigots, about which he was right in many cases, McGovern attacked him for it and said, people got the impression Muskie was crying again instead of responding to a problem we've got to do something about, the problem being that they had bigots voting for Democratic candidates. The primaries continued. Muskie even won in Illinois, but his campaign was out of gas and it was dying. So why did Muskie lose? The main reason seems to be that he spread himself too thin and took New Hampshire for granted. Here's what Time magazine wrote. He'd come across as fuzzy, an establishment kind of politician in a year when voters want revolt, and he's been unable to put his brand on any issue that can attract the fed-up, turned-off voter. And remember, this is an election year with younger voters turning out for the first time, and they wanted to hear somebody talking about getting out of Vietnam, and Muskie was just out of sync with that. He wasn't the most liberal candidate on the Vietnam question. Here's how George Mitchell Put Muskie's problems. Muskie's appeal was to reason, to legislative accomplishment, to sort of general policies in the best interest of the country. The primary electorate was interested in emotion, passion, strong views on every issue. And the general election candidate who tries to navigate a nomination process by not being clear on very hot button issues finds it difficult in the nominating process. So think about it. He's not passionate enough for the liberals in the party to win, and that's considered the smart thinking strategist view of this race and why Muskie didn't do well but the crying episode was seen by some as one in which he showed too much emotion what's probably the case is that while this was a massive moment that did cost him some number of votes that it was his lackadaisical campaign the mcgovern passion his difficulty trying to be all things to all people and the fact that he didn't organize the state well enough he had to at the last minute bus in people from rhode island to help him out And he was just out hustled in the 47 days of campaigning. Muskie spent 13 in New Hampshire. McGovern spent 24 there. So we'll let Hunter S. Thompson lead us out here. He wrote Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail about the 1972 election. And here's how he concludes writing about the Muskie campaign. Midway in the final week of the campaign, Muskie himself began dropping hints that he was now doomed When the sense of desperation began spreading like a puddle on the concrete, he invited campaign press regulars to help him celebrate his 58th birthday in a small hotel in Green Bay. But the party turned sour when his wife mashed a piece of birthday cake in the face of Newsweek reporter Dick Stout, saying, One good turn deserves another, eh, Dick? Long after the campaign was over, Miss Muskie reflected back on the moment. I'm not happy driving through Manchester, New Hampshire, even today. Two decades after this campaign was over, David Broder wrote about what happened in New Hampshire. and He said, it is now clear that the incident should have been played in a different context. Muskie was victimized by the classic dirty trick that had been engineered by agents of the distant and detached President Nixon. The Loeb editorial that had brought Muskie out in the snowstorm had been based on a letter forged by a White House staff member intent on destroying Muskie's credibility. But we didn't know that, and we didn't work hard enough to find out. Had those facts been known, I might have described Muskie in different terms, not as a victim of his over-ambitious campaign strategy and his too-human temperament, but as the victim of a fraud, managed by operatives of a frightened and unscrupulous president. That story surely would have had a different impact. Unwittingly, I did my part in the work of the Nixon operatives in helping destroy the credibility of the Muskie candidacy. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com, or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It keeps our host from crying or having too many drinks before dinner. It also helps spread the word, and this is America. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember the turning points in American history, the Battle of Saratoga, the Birth of Baseball, You get 80% off. Just go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Mike Wolo, who somehow last week was able to turn what amounted to a long belch into a podcast. Amazing, that guy. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. WhistleStop is part of the Panoply Network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply that's p-a-n-o-p-l-y our whistle stop crackerjack researcher is brian rosenwald who spent a weekend in manchester on his own dime seeking the sacred vial of musketeers, which he sadly reports was destroyed in the demolition of the wayfarer hotel i'm john dickerson i'll be back in two weeks with more tales from the trail here on whistle stop